and we only buy whiskey from distilleries that we visit because like, we think that's a really important part of our connection to the whiskey and the distilleries. And also when, when it comes down to it, we want to be able to guarantee that we saw the process, we understand it, we, under, we understand what, what they value and why they're doing what they're doing. And so when we are putting our brand behind this single cask or this blend, it's because we've actually done the work and we can say with confidence that this is cool for these reasons. Welcome back to Single Malt Matters, the American Single Malt Whiskey Podcast. I am your host, Matt Drew, back uh, this time a, a little bit of a detour, but not quite a total detour. Uh, I've got a really cool show this time. Uh, Adam Polanski and Nora Ganley Roper from Lost Lantern Whiskey. It's a brand new uh, project that I'm really excited about. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having us. Yeah, you bet. I know we've kind of been going back and forth for a while trying to put this together. And, and uh, I know, you know, scheduling anything in this day and age is pretty much next to impossible. So I'm really glad we could put it together. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well. I actually forget how you first found us. I think it was on Instagram or something like that, but I don't remember. You know, that's a good question. I was actually just thinking about that, too. Um, and I, I want to say that it was a previous interview that I had been doing and someone, I think it was uh, Matt Hoffman at, at Westland. Interesting. Okay. okay. So, and you guys came up um, and then I had already connected with you on Instagram, just sort of like totally separately, but that added a whole new different context of like, oh, okay, this is what we're doing because, um, and, and we'll get into this at that point. I think there was some growing awareness of Lost Lantern, but you hadn't actually released anything yet. So in terms of being out in the market and in people's faces, like that hadn't happened yet. So um, that was really cool. I mean, for me personally, it was just like uh, getting to kind of talk to you a little bit more and messaging back and forth a little bit before anything happened. It was just like, okay, cool. I'm like, I'm, I'm getting to know these guys before they really do anything. And, and I know something that other people don't know. And everybody <laughs> else knows it, which yeah. is totally cool. And, and by the way, congratulations, uh, for your launch, uh, which has been going phenomenally well. Um, and again, we'll talk about that here in a little bit, but, uh, First of all, uh, let's go back to you guys because you have some really cool, interesting backgrounds and resumes, and I want to jump into those, talk about how you met, talk about how that whole thing evolved, the idea behind Lost Lantern, uh, and just like take me back to the beginning. Absolutely. So, uh, so Lost Lantern, as you know, is an independent bottler in the uh, Scotch whiskey tradition. We source casks from all around the United States and release them in uh, blends and in single casks with full transparency on their origin. And we think that it's uh, the kind of thing that you can't necessarily do if you're just coming into the industry totally out of nowhere from somewhere else. And we both have a lot of industry experience. I was a uh, I got started writing for Market Watch magazine, which is a, a trade magazine uh, writing about the spirits business, and switched from there to Whiskey Advocate, where I was a senior whiskey specialist reviewing whiskeys from primarily around the United States, but really all over the world. And uh, 
Nora? Yeah. Um, so my background, my whiskey journey started at Astor Wines and Spirits in New York City. I actually come from the wine side of things. Um, so I was a, a, originally a wine specialist there, but then pretty quickly got promoted to sales manager and I ran the sales floor there. So had to manage kind of everyone on every front. So learned a lot um, about whiskey and spirits in general through that with our whiskey and spirits buyer. Uh, Nima really kind of teaching me and bringing me up and making sure that I could manage a bunch of whiskey specialists. So I learned a ton through um, being a sales manager there. And then I actually left the industry for three-ish years and went and worked at startups, basically so that I could learn how to build a business on someone else's dime. And then Adam came to me with this idea and our skill set, he's a writer, he knows a ton of people in the industry. And really the idea was his and he brought it to me, but then I have all of the business kind of background and I'm able to actually run um, production and our business's operations. Um, We met be, well, we're we're married, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah. Helps, that helps with finding a business partner. But um, we were already dating when Adam came to me with his business idea. Um, I yeah. uh, it was after I was at Aster and you had moved up in Whiskey Advocate. So do you want to yeah. tell a story of the idea? So so basically, I had been writing more and more about not just American single malt, but American whiskey being made across the country and. And really falling in love with it and seeing that all these relatively young distilleries were starting to do really interesting and new things that hadn't been done before in the United States and had gotten to the point where some of these whiskeys were really good right now. But I found that a lot of people still didn't necessarily know that. they these A lot of the distilleries are relatively small. They're not widely distributed. Or if they are more widely distributed, they just haven't been uh, gotten as much recognition yet as I, I think they should. And I had at the time been writing a story for Whiskey Advocate about independent bottlers in Scotland and how they play a role in the industry over there, getting the names of distilleries out that normally only go into blends. And that would often be the only way to get a distillery's single malt was through an independent bottler. And I started to wonder why has this never happened in the United States before? In some ways it makes sense. There are a lot of small distilleries, young distilleries that you can't get everywhere here's a way that could get them out there. And over time, it evolved from why has this never happened to sooner or later, this is going to happen to this is definitely going to happen pretty soon to wait. I have the experience and the connections and the palette. Nora has the palette and the business experience that we can do this. And we ultimately decided to go for it. And the way we decided to kick off the business was by leaving New York City and spending eight months on the road driving around the United States visiting whiskey distilleries all across the country because that's the only way to really see what's out there is go see it in person. Man, and just that just sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Hitting the road for eight months um, and visiting distilleries, meeting cool people. Uh, that's one of the cool things about this industry, especially on the craft side, is that it's it's got so many really genuinely nice, cool, interesting, wonderful people that are all uh, playing important roles. And, you know, we'll get into this a little bit more uh, here in a bit. But the great thing about it is it's such an open community and there's such a sense of collaboration that a project like this, like the time was just right for it. I think the stage had been set for it. And I want to talk a little bit about 
the independent bottling history, the tradition there, and kind of what that means in terms of sort of if you were to prognosticate the the future of American single malt in those terms, what are the implications there? Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree about the industry being super collaborative Mm -hmm. and there is literally no way we could be doing what we're doing if it wasn't like that. If everyone was really protective of their whiskey, if they said, this is my whiskey, no one else can have it. I don't want to share it. (laughs) There would never be room for independent bottlers or blenders or anything like that. It's the fact that distillers around the country are excited about what other distillers are doing that makes this possible. But to to touch on what exactly an independent bottler is and what role this has played in Scotland and could play here, I'm not a whiskey historian, so some bits of this may be uh, David Wondrich would probably have issues with parts of this. But <laughs> but he's not on the podcast. He's not on the podcast. So. <laughs> unless you have him waiting in the wings. But... Independent bottlers in Scotland got their start about 200 years ago. The oldest is, uh, is I believe, is Cadenhead. Uh, and they got their start the same way a lot of the modern big Scotch brands got their start. They were sourcing casks from distilleries all around the country to use in blends. Often it was the house blend for their grocery store because most of the big blends actually started in grocery stores in Scotland. And spread out from there. And over the course of the last 150, 200 years, the industry has changed a lot, but the independent bottlers have hung on. And what what they do now is they still buy casks from distilleries all over Scotland. And a lot of it is for blends. But as the single malt boom started in the 60s, and then later in the 80s, when a lot of distilleries closed, the independent bottlers were the only places that had huge stocks of much older whiskey. And as single malt became in really high demand, that uh, that was very much sought after. Because they're essentially, in Scotland, they've always been the buyer of last resort. When the whiskey market crashes, when there's a huge glut, when there's way too much single malt, the independent bottlers are the ones who are still there to take some of that on. And the result of that is like really, really good whiskey that is available much later and otherwise would... Uh, would not have been around. Like in the 90s, Ardbeg was only open for two two weeks a year. They had a mothball the rest of the time. And one of those weeks was to make whiskey for for Ardbeg and one week was to make whiskey for independent bottlers. And that was it. I actually have one, a 1991 Ardbeg from an independent bottler that isn't even around anymore. That was a bottle that's 10 years old and and it's great, but that's the thing that kept Ardbeg around long enough for it to come back. But that's a much bigger history than where we are in the United States. Yeah. Do you want to talk a I think, little bit? Well, I think I would add to that. It's also now it's one of the ways where whiskey lovers can get their hands on whiskey that's generally only used in blends. So there are a bunch of distilleries that just feed into some of the big blends that everyone's heard about, but you don't necessarily ever get a chance to taste the whiskey made by those distilleries except by independent bottlers. And I think that's what a lot of what we're inspired by is the idea of the independent bothers in Scotland giving a perspective on Scotch that is different than what you necessarily get from Highland Park or you get from Laphroaig. You're able to get something that is unpeated from a distillery where you've only ever had a peated expression from them. It's a way also for you to, to try something from a distillery that you may never have heard of. And I think that's what we're really bringing to the U.S. Because the interesting thing 
about Scotland versus the United States. Scotland is small. There are only so many distilleries. It's There's still a lot. But in the U.S., um, there are probably by now well over 2,000. I mean, I guess not that many people are starting in the pandemic. But there are about 2,000 distilleries out there right now. And no one in their right minds is going to be able to sift their way through all of that whiskey and figure out what works for their palate, what doesn't, who they're excited about, why they're excited about them. And I think in some ways for us, the curation of that and us doing all of the traveling and finding the things comes into play a little bit more than in Scotland where there the distilleries are generally generally at people's fingertips where for us like we had to go on an eight month road trip to even get to distilleries that are in the u.s a lot of places that we visited we had never heard of when we left and we only found them through adam's research and also from referrals from other distillers so i think we add a it's it's kind of a an extension of this independent bottler model where we go and sift through everything and find the hidden gems. Yeah. And so, so a couple of questions. The first one is, you, you know, when we're talking about your road trip, yeah. uh, first of all, what were some of the standout sort of hidden gems, some of the surprises that you discovered? Um, and, and what, what kind of role are they going to play sort of in the future of Lost Lantern? Hidden gems. It's a good question. And that might be kind of tough because it's one of those questions. I know, I know it's a it's a terrible, it's a terrible question to ask. I know it because by naming someone, you're not naming like three other people right. um, that may not be there. And so, you know, from that perspective, um, you know, mea culpa. <laughs> Sorry about that. I know it's kind of putting you on the spot a little bit. Um, but but uh, in terms of your first, like your vatted malt release, mm -hmm. um, were were any of those sort of like big surprises? I would say that one of the examples of that is it's a distillery that I knew about when I was at Whiskey Advocate, but but Copperworks Distillery has been around for a little while, but they're basically only in Washington, and now they're I think they're in Oregon a little bit. So unless you are right there, or unless you're in the whiskey media, you're not really going to be able to get it. So that's something that. Uh, we we get really excited about distilleries like that that mm -hmm. have built a local fan base that people really love them but just don't have that wider awareness yet um and they also immediately got our model we we didn't know them they were one of the few um participants in the american bad and malt project that we really adam hadn't met before and when he reached out to them cold they their response and we've gotten this response from a few other distilleries but we're really they were one of the first was basically the response was thank god we've been waiting for something like this to happen we're so excited this is a great sign for the industry that there's enough good whiskey that an independent bottler thinks that they can make enough money to survive on on the kind of projects that we're doing so that was also an exciting response and those are it, generally if someone gets it immediately it feels like um we can really work as partners as we kind of move forward yeah and there are there are lots of other hidden gems around the country and just in a in single malt you probably know these but they're like i said more locally known uh andalusia down in texas is making really nice stuff that's coming along pretty well they actually just released the very first ever bonded. Oh, cool. Uh, Texas bonded whiskey. Interesting. So yeah, super cool. Um, I'm actually yeah. hoping to get, uh, get them on the podcast here too. 
uh, yeah. soon. Their yeah, smoker is one of the cooler smokers we saw on our road trip. Yeah. Um, we we also really like uh, Vapor Distillery, which makes a Boulder whiskey in Colorado. And they also just came out with a bonded. And I know they were already on on here. So. Yeah, I love those guys. Graham, Graham Wallace, uh, just such a cool guy with such a great backstory. And another perfect example of some of the really cool people with just amazing backgrounds that are all kind of playing a, a, a unique and specific role in, in pushing the category forward. So that's really cool. Yeah. And then there are the places that, that we knew already and from when I was a whiskey advocate and, and Nora's experience, but that still don't necessarily have wider recognition, like uh, Santa Fe Spirits, and which makes Colkegan single malt, which is mesquite smoked, and Whiskey Delbach from Arizona, which is also mesquite smoked. And we think that those are both really fantastic distilleries making exciting and innovative whiskeys. And we want to help them get out there in a, in a slightly different way and talk to, talk to the kind of people who are really deep into American single malt or single malt in general and say like, if you don't want to sift through 2000 distilleries, here are a couple that are worth your attention right now. And we, we put out all of our single casks so far we've put out at, at cast strength and everything is always non-chill filtered, natural color, all that, of course. So we just want to present the whiskey the way we think it is at its best. And I think it's a good it's a good time to mention that Lost Lantern isn't focused strictly only on single malt whiskey. Right. That's correct. You you have kind of your your palate set to sort of the best examples of different styles. So backing that up a little bit. If you were to say, like, what's the mission statement? If you were to say what the mission statement of Lost Lantern is, um, what what would that be? And then look forward maybe five or ten years, and what do you want people to um, to look at Lost Lantern to be? Like, what what sort of a role in the marketplace do you see yourself serving? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I think how do we see ourselves? Basically, it, there are two goals um, for our business. One is done through our single cast program where we, on a quarterly basis, we release uh, single casks. So bourbon, rye, single malt always, and then sometimes something fun, like we had a corn whiskey in our first lineup. Those come out quarterly. Our goal for that is to sing the praises of the distilleries we work with and say, if you haven't had something from this distillery, they're worth checking out. Here's a really interesting cast from them. And truly, go check out the other things they do, buy that, get excited, come back for more. So it really is kind of, I mean, our tagline is shining a light on the independent spirit. And that is really what we're doing there. We're shining a light on distilleries and whiskeys made by them that are truly special. And then our second goal is to show the flavors that can be created by blending both across types of whiskey and across distilleries, because there are very few people that are doing that outside of blending bourbon. So some people are buying stuff from a few different bourbon distilleries or a few different rye distilleries um, and doing kind of the Kentucky style of bourbon and rye, but we're looking at a broader range of flavors. So that's, and that's where, where the American vatted malt really comes in is we have such a wide range of flavors and we're seeing what that means and how they taste and how we can create a new version of American whiskey as a whole. Yeah. And our, our vision for, for five to 10 years from now for, 
for our company is to to grow with the industry and as American single malt and other American whiskey matures to to play a role in that and be coming up with new blends that show flavors in a new way and also in a more practical sense. We uh, right now we don't have our own warehouse yet, but we want to eventually be doing what they do in Scotland and uh, buying new make from distilleries and aging it ourselves and sometimes buying mature whiskey and playing around with it in interesting ways and even aging it longer, finishing yeah. it. Doing, doing all those interesting things that distilleries don't necessarily have the time or energy to do on their own. And even sometimes like seeing how whiskey that is made in one place with grain from that place tastes if it's aged somewhere very different from that. What does Texas whiskey taste like if it's made with Texas grain and Texas water and then is aged for five or six years in Vermont, which is where we are? That's a very different thing than Texas whiskey that's aged in Texas. And we think that there's a a lot of fun experiments to be done there and we'll see which ones really shine and which ones are uh, more for curiosity's sake. But that's that's part of the fun of, like so many American single malt distillers, they try things and they don't know if they're going to work and they want to see it and you have to wait years to find out. But that's, uh, that's part of the fun. So for people who are just learning about what you're doing, uh, and who are just hearing about Lost Lantern for the first time, maybe potentially on this uh, episode. Of your first releases, one of them is the vatted malt, which we've talked about here a little bit. Explain that. What exactly is a vatted malt? So vatted malt until 2005, I believe, was the name for what is now called blended malt in Scotland. And a blended malt is a blend of 100% American single malt whiskeys. There's in in Scotland there's a there's no grain whiskey in it. It's just all single malt. And that's the same thing that we're using it to mean over here. And our American vatted malt uses the old Scottish name. It uh brings it back and uh we're not the only people to bring that name back, which is fun. So I think we're uh we're hoping that will become the name category. for for the category. But, but it specifically speaks to the fact that we're not adding anything to it because blends can include other things. So we decided to use vatted malt to signal that it's 100% single malts that are brought together and married and then bottled. Yeah. So the American vatted malt, we really wanted to show our our spirit of collaboration with the industry and what we want to do. See, so it's a, it's a blend of single malt from six distilleries around the country. And the, the way we created it, we think was really fun, which is on our road trip, we kept talking to distillers that we went to and they said, oh, what you're doing is so cool. Are you going to do any blends? Like I've always wanted to play around with other people's single malt and see what it would be like if we were like blending it together or something like that. And it uh, kept like coming up over and over again. And at some point we realized, oh, an independent bottler, we are the, we're the perfect people to set up something like that. So we were... While we were on the road, we went to uh, we set up a meeting in Denver uh, in 2019 and invited the distillers from these uh, six distilleries to join us to pick out barrel samples for us and uh, to spend a day with us blending together and giving everyone that chance to see what their whiskey is like blended with someone else's and play around with it. So we had a some of the very best single malt distillers all around the country in a room together, tasting samples from each other's distilleries and uh, over the course of a very long day, creating our own blends and testing them out and then eventually seeing, uh, choosing which one we like the best. 
Yeah. And these are kind of what we were pointing out before. These are some of these flavors have never been put together before. Like before we put put together the group and the blending session, we actually spent a couple of days testing to see if peated single malt will actually taste okay when combined with mesquite smoked single malt. Because who knows, like they could turn into something terrible or they could be beautiful or, and we wanted to make sure that before we invited distillers to come work with things, we weren't setting them up for failure. So it was, it was a really fun project from that perspective. And obviously our conclusion after a couple of days was those flavors work well together when paired correctly. Um, But there are peated, there's one peated barrel, there are two mesquite smoke barrels, there are other barrels that have been matured and retoasted wine casts. There are finished barrels. It's a whole range of flavors that came together only because these distillers brought some of their coolest, mo- most unique barrels because they were so excited about participating in this collaborative process. And it was it was a lot of fun just seeing how easily everyone agreed to doing this, that we we're a brand new company. We have so far released nothing. And we go up to some of the best single malt distillers in the country and say like, Hey, do you want to come blend with us and play around with some barrels? And, uh, the answer generally was, uh, was a very quick yes. yes. And I mean, we had known most of them before we had visited them on the road, but the fact that they were willing to do this and bring really special barrels for us and blend together was, uh, spectacular. I mean, but let's be honest too. It's not like you were just kind of rolling in off the street, like, "Hey, my name is uh, my name is Ted, and I want to, you know, do this thing. what do you think?" You know, I mean, it's like you, like I said, you've got the clout behind you. It's like, all right, th- these guys actually know what they're talking about. We right. trust them, so yeah, this is a great idea. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, who, who? Let's go ahead and drop some names. Who were you working with, and what are the distilleries that are in uh, the Vatted Malt? Yeah. So we have uh, we have six distilleries in the American Vada Malt. And uh, like I said before, we really want to be totally transparent about everything that we do. Like all the distillery names are right on the front label and the back label. And all the barrel details will be on our website eventually once we finish doing the new version and all that. But um, six distilleries starts with uh, Balcones down in Texas. I know you've uh, talked to Jared <laughs> before. Uh, he was... A very, very easy sell. It was like one email to him and he just wrote back, yes, period, and was <laughs> in. And um, so they're they're down in Waco making a hot climate single malt. We had Copperworks, which we mentioned before, in uh, in Seattle. They're, uh, they were uh, brewers originally and got into the distilling game. And uh, same for Westward down in, uh, in Portland, Oregon. We've talked to them too, also coming from a brewing tradition. Then we have Santa Fe Spirits in New Mexico, which makes mesquite smoked single malt, which is uh, which is really fun. And uh, Virginia Distillery Company in Virginia, which is a also a warm climate single malt, but uh, more humid. And they're uh, in the Virginia Highlands and a beautiful distillery there. The and fun, then, the fun as a, as a side note, the fun for that one was they had not released any of their own whiskey when, when they came. So a lot of the other distillers had never tasted their fully only Virginia Distillery Company whiskey at that moment. So that was, that was, it was fun for, for that process, but keep going. And then uh, Triple (laughs) Eight on Nantucket Island in Massachusetts, which is, uh, I believe is the oldest single malt distillery on the East coast. And uh, the Randy, the owner there is making a really spectacular single malt and generally has the oldest American single malt. It goes up to his core releases 
think it's 12 years now. He's done a 15 year old American single malt. The barrels we got were uh, three, three years and old seven and seven years, years old. old. But uh, it's really all really spectacular stuff and a, a real range of climates and and flavors. flavors. And that's what we wanted because there there is no really like hot climate scotch there because it's Scotland. <laughs> but in um, the United States, there's just such a diversity of climates and other factors like Santa Fe Spirits is located at 7,000 feet above sea level and which is 3,000 feet higher than the highest point in Scotland. So there's no one has been doing this kind of thing before. It was just fun to experiment like that. So you've now officially gone through your release of not only the American vatted malt, uh, but a couple of other expressions, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Uh, how, first of all, it's only been what, a couple of weeks? Yeah. Uh, two weeks. It'll be two yeah. weeks on Thursday. Yeah. So it's pretty fresh. Yeah. How has the, uh, how has it been received so far? Have you been getting some good feedback from it? Yeah, I mean, we, it's interesting because we have nothing is shipped or shipped earlier this week. So we haven't yet heard what people think, but the response on launch day was crazy. Um, our, we have a corn whiskey from Iron Root Republic in uh, Texas and their fans crashed our site. Well, really our retail partner site, because there was so much demand for the whiskey. Um, that first day we launched at 12 o'clock and there were 300 people trying to buy a hundred bottles of whiskey. So of that, of that single cask. Um, so that was an insane, um, experience and one that we hadn't anticipated. And it was definitely a little stressful when you start seeing the, the little circle going round and round and round and start getting emails with people saying, I can't get the whiskey, but really <laughs> it was, it was a great day. Um, and was super exciting and something that we could we never could have hoped for, but we're very happy to have it happen. And the, the fun thing about the American Vatimal is because there's been very little done like that before in the United States is we, every once in a while we get someone being like, hey, is this for real? Like you really got all these distilleries in on this? And like, how, how did that happen? And like, did you get a bunch of stuff from MGP or something like that? And we're like, no, it's the distilleries right on the label. MGP is great, but not what we're uh, what we're going for and the we've been excited that people have reacted to the transparency that we're trying to espouse the way that we hoped that uh people are ready for a an independent bottler that is just saying like this is not our whiskey but this is really great whiskey that you should know about and you should try and we're we're thrilled that people are receptive to that yeah and we only buy whiskey from distilleries that we visit because we think that's a really important part of our connection to the whiskey and the distilleries. And also, if when when it comes down to it, we want to be able to guarantee that we saw the process, we understand it, we, underst we understand what, what they value and why they're doing what they're doing. And so when we are putting our brand behind this single cask or this blend, it's because we've actually done the work and we can say with confidence that this is cool for these reasons. Um, and that, I mean, we live and breathe transparency and that's, I mean, that's why we try to make all of the barrel details available and um, we'll eventually have it on our site as some kind of database where people can just search and go way down the rabbit hole with us if they want to. Awesome. And so kind of taking that a step further, talk a little bit about the selection process, not only 
which distilleries uh, that, that you choose, I mean, to visit and choose to work with, but also which whiskeys, you know, how do you, how do you select whiskeys? Uh, are you going for a particular flavor profile or just kind of rolling the dice or maybe a little bit of both? How does that work? So when we're looking for a single cask from a distillery, choosing a distillery is often actually the easy part because we've, we've, know the places that we visited that we really like and that we think are making great whiskey right now and are open to it and understand what we're doing. So we've got uh, lots of feelers out there all the time. What we generally like to do is try to get two single casks at a time. One of those we want to be representative of that distillery's core style as a way of introducing it to people who don't know that distillery yet, because even the biggest American single malt distilleries or younger distilleries are they're still getting their name out there. It's not like the big Kentucky bourbon houses that are doing millions of cases a year. So we know that there are people who are still going to discover these and we can get in front of a slightly different audience. Then for the other cask, we like to get a little more playful and look for something that's a little different than what that distillery normally puts out. Something that uh, maybe goes against their house style or is unique or an experiment they were trying that they're excited about, but not quite sure what to do with as a way for fans of that category or that distillery to get something that's a little new and different. So we like to give a little discretion to the distillers that, that we work with. And we say, Hey, I basically tell them what I just told you one, one thing, one thing that's like your core style, one thing that's a little different. And within that, have some fun, send us some interesting stuff. And we find that it's better to give a little bit of guidance, but leave them that room because then we get sent some really like really unique cool and interesting stuff. Yeah. But and we also, we never pick casks on site. We've all like, I'm sure most, if not all of your listeners have been on a distillery tour and you go and you talk to people and you love everything you taste and you buy a bunch of stuff and you come back and you go, wow, this one bottle is not really for me. But in the moment we got carried along and loved the story and loved the people. So it's really important for us that we do consistent um we have consistency in our tasting and in our process so that when we come to a selection process it will bring the best results that we can hope for because we found that we love everything when we're on site and then when they mail it or we bring samples back it becomes clear pretty quickly which ones we're going to move forward with but we have a pretty rigorous process i mean generally distilleries will send us between eight and 20 samples um, and that ranges a lot. Um, so we have kind of two types of selections that we make. We do what we call um, a screening flight where it's basically we both taste them separately. And if either of us wants to taste them again, they move forward. Um, and we go, depending on how many samples, we try to narrow that down to about four to five, basically saying, okay, this is worth tasting again. I wasn't sure. And it allows us to take out the ones that just don't fit with what we're looking for right now, either for a blend or for a um, single cask. But then we move into our selection tastings. And for us, everything we both have to say yes to. Not maybe, not, okay, fine. If you really love it, we can buy it. We both have to be excited about it. And I think our our palettes are very different. I mentioned before that I come from the wine side. So I find sometimes whiskey can overwhelm my palate. So something that's too, like when I think about sherry finishes, I can get just destroyed. Or if something is too much oak, I get destroyed. Whereas 
Adam loves a face melter. He loves Big Pete. He loves the Sherry. So it's, we find that if we're both super excited about a cask, that because our palettes are so different, our hope is that if we're both saying yes, it will be of a certain level of caliber and appeal to a range of palettes. Um, but when we go into the actual selection process, we do as many flights as we need to, to narrow it down to the number of barrels that we're okay with. And every once in a while, there's a distillery that we love and there are barrels that we both love, but we can't get to an agreement on the specific barrel. And so we will pass and come back in another year. If we can't agree, we won't buy it. So we we've gone... I think up to 10 different flights of the same whiskey in different, because we also, we vary the time of day, we vary the context, we check on our pat, like making sure that we're still picking the same casks and we're agreeing on the casks. And it's, as I, I'm going to emphasize this again, we, ha we both have to say yes. And it has come not to blows, but we've had words <laughs> once or twice about um, whether or not something should be purchased. So it is a true labor of love. Because I was actually going to ask about palate fatigue specifically. And have you, has there been any surprise where, where you went through the process and, you know, had your mind made up, but then came back and said, Oh, wait a second. Now we're tasting this at a different time and uh, my mind has changed on it. Yeah. And that's, that's why when we can, I like to not eliminate anything in the first run and honestly do the entire thing in a different order at a different time of day, the, the next time, because whiskey surprises you and what shows well one day may show differently another day. And mm -hmm. we want to leave room for those kind of surprises. I think we've done, we've never done fewer than three distinct tastings. So I don't think we've ever gotten to a point where something we decided to buy something and then we came back and we regretted it. It's, it's usually the first or second time we're like, this thing is the best cask we've ever tasted from this distillery. And then we come back and something actually beats it. So I think because our process is so involved, we get to a point where we basically force consistency. So if something actually makes it through flight five, six, or seven, it has to be good under many different circumstances. And usually in the last flight, we start adding a little bit of water to it. Because even though we plan to release our single cast at cast strength, we, we know that not everyone drinks it that way, or including us. We right. usually drink stuff at cast strength. Sometimes you want to add a little bit to it. So we like to see how the, uh, the flavors, uh, come about with that. And, uh, that's actually what, what happened with our American Vada malt. We chose not to release that at cast strength because we added a little bit of water to it. And it, we felt like that actually brought out some of the flavors a little more. And, uh, as our, the, our bottler slow proofed it for us over the course of a couple months that actually, uh, brought the flavors together really nicely. So we, we chose to release it at 105 instead of cast strength. Yeah. Adding a little water actually allowed the flavors to integrate better. And explain the slow proofing process. Um, so it is basically just adding water slowly to the whiskey over time. I think it took us about three months to bring it from about 120 proof down to 105. Um, and I mean, Part of the goal is to not have any weird chemical interaction because some stuff can happen when water is added quickly to spirits. Um, and that is something that you get around by slow proofing. 
but also for a whiskey that has so many different flavors going into it. Just like when you think about making a stew or a curry, if something sits for longer, the integration will allow an entirely new thing to emerge from these disparate flavors. And so the slow proofing process just allows that to happen um, naturally and over time and gives, gives the different flavors space to come together into something unique and new. Yeah. It's a, it's a trick we picked up from, from some of our distiller buddies and uh, a few people have told us this. One of the ones I remember was, uh, was Dave Smith at St. George mm-hmm. when we were visiting him. He was, we were telling him about how we were experimenting with mesquite whiskeys and peated whiskeys together and how they like the first day they were, if they were in equal proportions, they tasted a little weird. And he was like, what are you doing tasting your blends on the first day for? You can't do that. You got to let them sit for a couple of days and then come back. And we've basically been doing that ever since. We, yeah. And that, that's the great thing about us being able to travel around and pick people's brains is we, our process is very much built off of the things that other people have learned and told us to try. So we're lucky we're not, we're not reinventing the wheel. We're taking the best of what we heard from everyone and making it work for ourselves. And how, so first of all, your process, I, I love the methodology and the consistency of your process. As I understand it, that's not how the first release of the vatted malt went. How explain that to me a little bit. Uh, and, and how, how did that all come together? So you're talking about the, the blending process. Yeah. Just the tasting, the selection process, the, the whole thing. Yeah. So um, American Fatted Malt is is going to be kind of a unique thing because it's made in one day. We, we're, we're working now on other blends that take a lot more time and give us weeks and weeks of different tests. And um, but yeah, American Fatted Malt came together in one day, and that was that was the interesting the interesting project for us is to bring all of these different people together. We had to only take a limited amount of their time, so each of the distillers to our blending session brought four, five different barrels, uh, samples, barrel samples. And we spent the morning tasting through everything. And then the afternoon was spent um, playing with them and blending and trying different things. And yeah, we didn't let it sit for two days like we would now in our blending process. But that's, I mean, that's the interesting thing is American Vat and Malt will be this. Like we're going to do this kind of thing with the American Vat and Malt line consistent, consistently. That's our plan, at least when the pandemic allows. Um, but we tasted it after a couple, two hours of sitting and we all, everyone made their own blends and we voted on the one that we liked and we played with proofing and kind of went on our way. And I think that's also why the slow proofing was so important because we hadn't done those tests because it gave us more confidence that the flavors would integrate and come together in a way that would ultimately be satisfying to different palates. The the fun thing about everyone in the group doing their own blend, each of the the six Mm -hmm. distillery groups plus us, is we got to see in action at the same time that different people blend in very different ways. Like some people brought their laptops, brought an Excel spreadsheet and took notes on each of the 35 something cast samples that we had and like rigorous notes and flavor like profiles them on and different like things. Immediately yeah. made a little chart of like, this sample is spicy and fruity. 
This one is like smoky and chocolatey. So their blend was basically spat out by their analysis of these different barrel samples. And other people were taking meticulous notes by hand. And uh, Jared from Balcones like didn't eat anything that entire day until we were done with the blend because <laughs> he didn't want to mess up his palate. And that we, dude uh, was wrecked. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was. It, it there was a lot of whiskeys. Obviously, we're not swallowing them all, but still, yeah, it was a lot. It was then, a lot. And then some people were just doing it uh, based on their intuition and their experience. They were smelling everything, they were tasting everything, and just holding it all in their heads all at once. And all these places, all six of these distilleries, made great whiskey, and these different blending approaches work for them. And obviously, they're condensed into a shorter period, but it's, it was really fascinating to see the variety of approaches that people take. So thinking back to that day and, you know, putting myself in your shoes at that point, obviously you have no idea what to expect. So you can't really, I mean, there's nothing, you, you can't anticipate how it's going to go. No. But the other side of that, were there any big surprises that you remember? I think the the big surprise is how well everyone got along and was excited to just come out with something. Like we really didn't know, like, all these distilleries, they make really good whiskey. They're proud of what they make and they haven't blended it with anyone else's before. We like, we didn't think anyone was going to come to blows or anything, <laughs> but we, uh, we thought it might be a little contentious sometimes like, Oh my, my blend is way better. No, your, this one is way better. Or why didn't you include my whiskey, enough of my whiskey in your blend? Are you trying to exclude like those kind of like political maneuverings yeah, could it, have happened. And none of them did. There was no even hint of, posturing or anything everyone was just there having a good time and the nice thing is it's really good whiskey so everyone is already there respecting the other people and going this is a cool project and it's also nice because it's under our brand so it's it for them it was just they got to play with a whole range of things that they generally don't get to on in their normal day job so yeah the camaraderie and just like fun was what what we had hoped but it was it was a nice surprise that it actually came out that way all right that's a great place to hit the pause button on my conversation with adam and nora from lost lantern whiskey for this week and it's such a cool project right next week we'll pick right back up where we left off and start really getting into a couple of their very uh, recent first releases but first, I'm looking forward to talking with them about their unique perspectives on what the potential future of regional flavor variation in American single malt could look like. The interesting thing about regionality is part of it is automatic from where you are and your climate and how you're aging your whiskey. But a lot of it has to be deliberate. You have to be, if you're really going for regionality, you should be looking for local grains that are grown in your climate and embracing that side of it and really focusing on local sourcing for everything that you can. Special thanks as always goes out to Michael Kirkpatrick for our theme music. You can head over to michaelkirkpatrickmusic.com for the latest on what he's up to. And for links and more information about anything you heard on this episode, just go over to asmwpodcast.com and click on episode 22 for show notes and links. 
And I don't know, maybe while you're at it, sign up for the Single Malt Matters newsletter. If you like what you're hearing here on the podcast, I would love for you to subscribe and stay up to date on new episodes as they come out. And if you've got a minute, a five-star rating and quick review would really make a huge difference in its success and help for it to be more easily found by people just like you interested in what's happening in the world of American single malt. Until next time. Mm -hmm.